Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. You guys will stand. We have a good God, um, so let's sing about that. Let's sing together.
before the Lord. Um, if you don't know Christ, you don't know what that means, but you're hungering and thirsting. You're in the right place. Not that we have anything to offer except Jesus. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you are here and sense your need, that's a good sign that he's after you. We can't bring anything to him, whether as a sinner or as one who has hope in Christ. We cannot come with anything of ourselves. Um, the Bible is not very complimentary. Uh, it's one reason people hate it so much. It's not very complimentary about what we are since the fall. None are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are portrayed as enemies of God. But God sent his son to be our deliverer. And let us pray. 
our Father in heaven. We confess that we have looked to other things, looked to ourselves. We have fought and struggled desperately to um, be worth something in ourselves, uh, to justify ourselves, Lord. And we've looked to other things for our satisfaction. And we just ask you to forgive us for Jesus' sake. Thank you, Lord, that you have laid your iniquity, our iniquity, on him. And thank you, Lord, that you have, that Jesus, you now sit at the right hand of the throne of God where you ever plead for us, interceding for your own. And we glorify you, Lord, and thank you that our names are engraved on your hands and that your grace will never grow weary of your saints. May we find rest in you, both saint and sinner alike, this day. In Jesus' name, amen.
Oh, yeah. 
Lord, we thank you for being good to us. Lord, help us to live lives that honor you, God. And in this time, help us to learn, learn more about you, God. Learn how to follow you better through your word. God, I pray that you'll help Dave to speak clearly. God, help us to listen to what you have to say to us. God, help us to be a people who love you and love others. To your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Two announcements I forgot because I didn't have my little cards in my hand. Two more. Um, kid check. We've talked about this. If you will go to, if you're a parent of a kid, uh, not a goat, but a child, uh, 18 and under, if you will go to kidcheck.com, search for Grace Bible Church and log your children in, get your information in. Basically, what this is, is it's just like the databases we've already been using, uh, but we've got the added benefit of their security measures in place, and you can, you can change your information, and it can be password protected for you to interact and update your information online. Uh, and then we'll have scanners, not chips embedded under their skin, but we'll just have little you know, stickers we print out for the nursery and things like that, so we can scan and, and have uh, just a cleaner way of keeping track of our attendance and knowing how many kids we got in each class and being able to keep track of everybody. So if you'll log on to that, we're going to start actually using it um, here in a couple of weeks in December. So we need you to log on and, and get your kids checked into kidcheck.com. You want to say that with me? One, two, three. Kidcheck.com. Very good. Some of you tried to say the like five sentences, right? I was just saying the kidcheck part. Um, sorry. That was kind of funny. Um, the other thing is small group leaders. Raise your hand if you're a small group leader. Anyone? Anyone here? Small group leader, uh, small group assistant leader. Raise your hand, Mike. Uh, how about Sunday school teacher? If you're leading adults uh, in any way whatsoever, if you've ever been a small group leader, if you know a small group leader or you think someday you might be a small group leader, we want you to stay after for lunch. It's going to be right here in our back room, kind of our little chapel room back here. Uh, we're going to have a, a lunch, and uh, we're going to just discuss small groups, what it takes to lead one, and just effective ways of building community together. If you are not in a small group yet, I want to, again, encourage you to check out the gold sheet in our bulletin and look at that as a way to connect with other people, not just because you need it, but because they need you there as well. So that's all that. Um, if you will open your Bibles to Matthew 25, we're continuing our Kingdom Come series in Matthew, and we are going to be finished here in just a couple of weeks. We're going to finish the book of Matthew. Can you believe that? I can't believe it. It's been a year. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, we are going to, I'm going to try to work some of the uh, um, crucifixion and resurrection stuff into our Christmas sermons, uh, but we already preached on the crucifixion and resurrection passages back at Easter last year. Those are the two that we kind of did out of order, kind of followed the 
liturgical church calendar and did those last year, but everything else we've kind of been following in order, and now we're wrapping up Matthew with chapter 26 next week, um, and then we'll have someone speak on the Great Commission. A guest will be joining us. One of our church planters in Houston is going to be speaking for us at the end of November, kind of that Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and then uh, we'll be looking at Christmas for December and pray for us. Uh, I'm praying with the elders and discussing with the elder board at the church what we'll be looking at next. Uh, but we're looking at maybe a topical series just for January and then uh, starting a new book series then in February. One of the things that we do here at this church, if you're new, is what it's called expository preaching, which basically just means we expose the Bible. So we try to work through books of the Bible. Just work through week after week. And what that does is that protects you from my hobby horses, right? I'm just not on my soapbox every week talking about what I want to talk about, um, but I'm talking about with whatever God leads us to in the chapter that week. Um, and that's worked out interestingly in Matthew because here we've been talking about the end of the world the last few weeks, a subject I wouldn't choose for myself. And then today we're talking about... Well, this is real dramatic. You can feel the tension building, right? There we go. Today we're talking about judgment. We're talking about judgment, which is something that our culture doesn't like. It's kind of not a, uh, it's not a value that we value as a culture. We really prefer tolerance. Um, but judgment is something that's found in the Bible, and it's even something Jesus talks about. Uh, we always like to quote him where he says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. But there's some other places, like today's chapter, chapter 25, where he says, we will be judged. So if you'll open up to Matthew 25 with me. We'll read starting in verse 31, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Bibles under the chairs, page 831 in those Bibles. But we're in Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Ask God to, to lead us. Father, we pray for help. You know who we are, you know where we live, you know the time in which we live, and you know that, that judgment is a hard pill for us to swallow. Father, I pray that you would help us to have listening ears and soft hearts, that we would that we would receive what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray for myself that my words would be clear. I pray for all of us that we would be responsive to what you say to us. And 
that you would teach us. We pray that you would teach us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was fearfully awaiting judgment. I was 11 years old, and I was sitting in that uh, sterile, cold office under the flickering fluorescent lights of the principal's office at my middle school. I was sitting in the hallway. I think it was a molded plastic green chair, I think, probably built in the 60s when the school was first uh, put up. And uh, I was sitting there waiting in fear of the coming judgment. You see, I was about to go in and see the vice principal, who the way the structure of the school was, where I went to school, his whole role, his whole purpose for existing was to elicit fear, especially the fear of judgment in, in little children, little junior high boys to be specific. Um, so there I was, very afraid, because he was just mean, and that's what his job was. His job was to be mean. His job was to be scary. The, the principal at the school, his job was to kind of give people high fives in the hallway and I guess run the school or do something, you know. We all know the, uh, the school secretary really runs the schools, but, you know, he, he did something and tried to make everybody feel happy. But the vice principal, he was this really big guy with a really deep voice, and like this big scruffy beard, and uh, he just scared people. He scared people, and that was really his job. And so there I was, waiting in the office, about to go in and see him. I was awaiting judgment for, for this banned practice that, that really I didn't feel like I should come under judgment for, but it had been made illegal now at the school, and I had been caught participating in this uh, practice. You're probably wondering what this horrible thing was that I was doing, aren't you? Yeah, I was afraid I was going to have to explain that. Um, well, it was something that junior high boys were fascinated with. Uh, we had found a, uh, a new function of our, of our mouth, of our body, this, this amazing way that if you held your mouth just right, you could like make the uh, salivary glands like shoot a little bit of spit out of your mouth. So it wasn't spitting. It wasn't like a, you know, spitting on the floor. It was just like you'd hold your mouth right and you know, like crack your jaw and it would go ding. And we called it tinking. Anybody, did, anybody learn to do that when you were a kid? Yes, of course. And probably at your school, the teachers applauded you for it, right? But at our school, we got sent to the office for that kind of thing. It had been banned. We were not allowed to do that. So there I was, awaiting judgment and, and praying that he would be merciful. But, uh, but I have bad news. He was, he was not merciful. And uh, this was back in the early 80s when they still had a big board that they would uh, apply to your backside and we would get swats. Um, I like to call it a beating, but they called it swats, and uh, they would just smack you for something as silly as tinking. Um, and it's, it's fun to joke about, but, but it's, a, it's a way of kind of disarming us a little bit because we were afraid of the real judgment that we're facing. You know, we, we all face a much more serious judgment than getting swats when you're 11 years old or in the sixth grade or whatever it was. We all face a much more serious judgment. And as I said earlier, our, the time that we live in, the culture that we live in, we, we don't like judgment. That's, that's not something we want to think about. It's something we, we like to skip over. But because we're, we're going through the text, here it is, and we have to deal with it. And so I know some of you that have grown up in churches, you're familiar with the concept. Um, maybe it's been taught to you well. Maybe it's not been taught to you well. But you know there's this idea of judgment that's coming. Um, for those of you that haven't grown up in church, it may be less familiar to you. But the way I'd like to tackle this is let's, let's just try to hit it fresh, as, as if we don't have any preconceived notions about judgment. And let's just try to attack it, um, just kind of take it as he gives it to us. What is he telling us about judgment? And the first thing that I think we're going to hit is, is the idea of the judge himself. 
I mean, the first thing that we have to wrestle with as a culture and as individuals is, do we believe that anyone has the right to judge us? Is anyone free to judge us? And I would argue that the text is telling us that, yes, there is one person that gets to judge us. That Jesus agrees that we shouldn't go around judging each other all the time and being judgmental. Um, yes, there are some things you have to judge, right and wrong. Some things are always right, some things are always wrong. But you shouldn't be a judgmental person. Um, but as far as ultimate judgment, eternal destiny, there's one person that gets to make that judgment. There is one person that's free to make that judgment. Jesus is free to judge us. He is free to judge. It says this in verses 31 through 33. It tells us who he is, what kind of person he is, what position he has. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say this, and it goes on to, to give us the judgment. But it starts off giving us the vision of him coming in glory. It says all the angels will be with him, right? This is this cosmic scene, this kind of cosmic, fantastical, into-the-world scene of, of Jesus coming on the clouds in full glory. You know, the, the art that we picked for our sermon series with Kingdom Come, we tried to contrast the suffering servant, the crown of thorns, with the glorious king, the golden crown. And we've talked about how there's that tension, right? They expected Jesus, the Messiah, to come in glory and, and just beat up Rome and establish this glorious kind of physical, visible kingdom that they could all see right then. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not the time yet. But here in chapter 25, he's saying that time will come. First, he suffers for us. In the future, there will be the glorious kingdom. That, that glorious day is, is coming. He, he will come and he will judge and he will come in full glory. And there will be this, this army of angels behind him. And it will be something that will be frightening and amazing to see. And it says somehow all the nations of the world will be gathered before him. It said our, our culture doesn't like the idea of judgment. But apparently Jesus is saying that day is coming. There will be a time when we will be judged. And he is the one that's free to judge us. He has got the rights as king, as the glorious one. The, this imagery of him being this glorious king and coming on the clouds is, is given to us in Daniel 7. We've talked a little bit about how the Trinity is really something new that we understand when Jesus comes in the Gospels. And we begin to understand this doctrine of the Trinity that, that there are three persons, but one God. There's only one God, but God is in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, in, in Daniel, we start to get hints of that. You know, in the Old Testament, they didn't fully have that fleshed out. Um, there were appearances of, of a, a messenger of Yahweh that spoke as Yahweh and a mediator of Yahweh that spoke as Yahweh as God himself. And so we got those little hints of it. And here in Daniel, we kind of get this future vision of what Jesus is talking about. Daniel 7.13 says... Daniel's describing his vision. He says, At night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, what Jesus often calls himself, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God himself. So he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, all nations, and men of every language worshipped him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here Daniel is giving that hint of that future that's coming. And Jesus now in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, is saying, yes, I am that Messiah. I'm that Son of Man that Daniel prophesied. 
Jesus is saying he's the one that's both the perfect man but also God himself. And he's given by God the Father the dominion as God over all the earth. He is the king who is free to judge. He's given the throne. He's given the scepter. He's given the crown. And Jesus is told, you, you are the king of the universe. You are free to judge all nations that are gathered before you. As modern people, we grade against that because we don't believe anyone can judge us, right? So we've been taught that since we were little kids. You know, don't judge each other. Don't make judgments. Be tolerant. Be permissive. And, but Jesus is saying, he is the one that is free to judge. He's the one that can actually look into your heart. He's the one that knows everything about you. He's the one that both knows your weaknesses, but also knows your strengths. He knows when you didn't do what you should have done, and he knows when you did do the things you shouldn't have done. He knows everything. He is the one in all of the universe who is free to judge us, who's free to make that judgment. I wanted to make another little kind of uh, interpretive point about the sheep and the goats thing. I think there's a cultural thing that we don't get because we read this passage with 2,000 years of church history behind us, right? So when we read Sheep and the Goats, we're already familiar with the passage already before we read it. It's, it's kind of part of literature. It's part of our world. And so we think, you know, sheep, good, goats, bad. But they're really used interchangeably in the Bible. Goats aren't always bad in the Bible, and sheep aren't always good. So it's really more about the separation than about how good sheep are or how bad goats are. Um, really, there's so many species of sheep and goats that a lot of times they can actually look just alike. And somebody like me wouldn't be able to distinguish, but an experienced shepherd would be able to tell them apart. And a lot of times they can both have the same color wool and they can both have the same thickness of fur and, you know, it's covering their head. So you can't necessarily see just with the naked eye and a quick, at a quick glance which one's which. But a shepherd, you know, could look at them and, and make that distinction. So it's not one of those things that's just not as clear in our culture. You know, we just think about it as, oh, this one's obvious and that one's not obvious. But part of the point of this text is... There is one who is free and has the authority and the right and the qualifications to distinguish between them. So it's really about the separation more than about which one's better than the other. Does that make sense? So it's about his, his freedom to distinguish, his, his right to judge us. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 talks about this, this right that Jesus has as the king of the universe. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it talks about how Jesus not only has a right and a sovereignty and a supremacy over all of creation because of his role in creation. So just by being God, he has these rights over the universe, right? Because he is God. He's one with God. But also by being the perfect man, he has rights over all of creation. So not only is he God and he's like sovereign and he knows our hearts and he knows our minds, but he actually lived a perfect life. He lived the perfect life. He lived the life we should have lived. And so in Colossians, it talks about his rights over us, both as creator and as redeemer. He lived the perfect life and died a death to take our place. That's what the cross is all about, his substitution for us. He gave us the life that we should have lived, and he took our sin upon himself on the cross. And so again, we see that he is free to judge. Of anyone, he is the one that can make the right judgment, make the right distinctions as he looks into our heart and looks at the course of our life. I found a, a picture here because I was thinking about how we confer uh, authority and rights in our culture. And we usually give people certificates, right? Or some kind of title. And I just watched this movie the other day, The uh, Wizard of Oz. And I'm thinking, this is what kind of authority looks like sometimes in our culture. We give someone a position or a title or a certificate. You know, the Scarecrow's deal in the movie is he wanted brains. And the wizard says, oh, you got enough brains. What you really need is a diploma. You need a diploma to tell people that you're smart. Okay? 
That's what you really need. You need some sort of authority, some sort of sign, some sort of seal to certify that you've gone somewhere, you've done something, you've achieved something. That's how we often think of it in our culture, right? Just some title. Oh, you're, you're in charge. All right, go make decisions. And so we're used to bucking that system, aren't we? We're used to kind of rebelling a little bit and going, oh, just because that guy's in charge doesn't really mean he has a right to boss me around. You know I mean? We're, we just have this, it's just part of our culture. It's just ingrained in us. We have this slight, you know, rebellion just built into our DNA that we know that having a degree doesn't really mean anything or having a title doesn't really mean anything or just because just you're a higher rank doesn't really mean you've got everything figured out. I mean, we have to obey people when they're in charge of us, you know, but in the back of our head, we're going, he doesn't, he doesn't really have the right to judge me or to tell me what but, but it's different with Jesus. Jesus really does have the right. He is the one in all of the universe that doesn't fit that, that way that we normally think about it. He is the one in all the universe that has the right to judge us. That is free to judge us. And so my question for us, for me as well as for you, is do you continue to buck against that? Just like you do with every bad boss you've ever had? Or do you recognize that he alone is the one that is all-knowing? that is wise, that is perfect, that has the right to judge me, to look into my life, and to call me to account. Jesus alone can do that. He's alone the one that is qualified and free to judge. As we look through this, I want to, um, I guess, call us back from the brink of despair with some of the words of Isaiah. Because Isaiah gives this kind of judgment uh, imagery in Isaiah 58 that Jesus uses here. Jesus is basically quoting out of Isaiah 58. And so I kind of went there and I picked out some verses from Isaiah to encourage us. Because as we're looking towards Jesus' right to judge us, it, it could drive us to despair, right? We could go, oh no, someone, someone does actually have the right to judge me and I'm in trouble. I wanted to quote something from Isaiah 53, 6. As we think about being sheep or being a goat or being someone that's, that's wandered and hasn't uh, done what we should have done, Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So my question is, do you rebel against his rights to judge you? Your answer should be yes, because we all have. We've all rebelled against that. We all buck that right, that freedom that Jesus has to judge us. But our hope is in the gospel. Isaiah 53, 6, we've all wandered, but the gospel says that Jesus laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all, the wandering of us all. Jesus took that on himself when he died on the cross for us. The next thing I want us to look at are the results of judgment. The results of judgment. Again, this is something that we don't like to face as a culture. It's something that we don't want to look at. I'm just going to read a few of the key verses. Verse 34, Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's the side we like, Right? That's the good side. That's the good result. That's the good direction that we want. But that's contrasted with verse 41. 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This, this is old-fashioned doctrine, right? As modern people, we don't, we don't like that. We're all about heaven. Yeah, everybody's cool with heaven. We all want a heaven to go to. But hell, eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels... None of us like that doctrine. Um, and again, this is the advantage of expository teaching where, you know, probably I would just go, yeah, let's not talk about that. We could talk about that next week. And I could just keep putting it off for years and years and never talk about hell. But, but Jesus talks about it. He says it's a real place. Now, I don't know the, the uh, 
ontological existence of hell. I don't know exactly what it's like, but I know it's horrible. That, that's what I know. He says it's like fire. He says it's a horrible place. He says it's to be cursed. To be sent there is to be cursed. So I know it's not somewhere we want to be. There's this contrast. There's two directions that we can go. Again, something that, that we kind of push back against as modern people. We're, we're taught not to talk like that. We're taught not to think that. We like to make fun of churches that preach about hell every week and try to scare people into believing in Jesus. Um, but, but there's an appropriate time to be afraid. There's a real time. You know, you want your kids to be afraid of, of real danger. And Jesus says in several places we've seen over the last few weeks that there is this real danger of being eternally separated from God. Now, he's a gracious God, he's a forgiving God, and he invites us in to be with him. But that doesn't mean that place doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's not something real that we don't have to be afraid of. I, I just grabbed a couple of pictures of contrast in our minds. You know, Jesus lays out to us um, two options. You know, here's the, the picture of the beautiful vacation. Here's a picture of the beach. If you like the beach, I guess that would be a nice place to go. For those of you that don't like the beach, imagine something that you'd like to go to. But uh, this, this wonderful place. This place that we all want to go to, contrasted with what Jesus often says, Gehenna, the garbage dump, the place of trash, the place outside of Jerusalem where they burned the trash and the fire was always burning and they heaped uh, dead bodies and waste and refuse and trash and they just burned it all the time and it always, it just always smelled bad. There's always smoke coming up. That's the word that Jesus uses for hell most often in the New Testament. So Jesus lays out there's two different directions, there's two different results. When it comes to judgment, you can be sent this way or you can be sent the other way. 2546, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Two different directions. There really are two different options. There really is an antithesis. There really is a contrast. There really are two choices in life in the end. I want to give you again hope from Isaiah. As we think about the results, we think about the destination, where we could be. This is the picture that Isaiah paints for us in Isaiah 25. He describes it this way. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him. And He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. This is His doing. As we face the despair of the possibility of being eternally separated from God, it's important to remember that being with Him forever is His doing. If you feel despair, if you feel the weight of judgment, if you feel that fear of waiting in the waiting room for judgment, Know that, that the Bible encourages us again and again that it's God's graciousness and His goodness to us that we can expect a heaven, that we can look forward to the party. It's described as this feast, right? A feast of rich foods for all people. I know it doesn't sound good to some of you that are Baptist, a banquet of aged wine and some of these other things, but, but just think of it as metaphorical language for a great, a great party. It's, it's supposed to be this wonderful, inviting place that we want to be. And he says he'll destroy that shroud that enfolds all peoples. That sheet covers everything. It's like this heavy blanket over our existence, which is death. He says death will be swallowed up forever. He'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. We all know that as we 
accept Christ and His gift of salvation to us. That doesn't magically remove all problems in our life. We continue to live in this world that is covered with that shroud of death. We continue to walk around with the diseases we had before we met Christ. We continue to often have some of those same broken relationships, some of those same hurts. But we look forward to this day, to this party, to this feast, to this mountain, where he's going to make everything right. And again, we have to emphasize that last part where he says, it's the Lord that did this. He is the one. He is the one that, that did it. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. It's all Him. We have to understand that before we face the despair of, of the final category of what we're judged for. What are we judged for? What is judged? In verses 34 through 45, you get this distinction, right, between those who uh, loved the hurting and those who didn't. I'm going to read the first few verses here in the uh, Verse 35, he describes it this way. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So the, the, the criteria, the surprising standards by which we're judged are do we love other people? Do we help the hurting? Do we, do we give food to those that are hungry? Do we invite strangers in and show hospitality? And, and that's scary. That's a scary standard, right? Especially if, if you've grown up in the church and you've been grown up in a good Protestant church that says it's the standard is believe in Jesus. There's the, the not believing in Jesus people and there's the believing in Jesus people. Now, I still believe that's ultimately a distinction, the distinction. But we've got to let the weight of this sit on us a little bit. I mean, there's a reason that Jesus presents it to us this way. I believe he wants us to feel that distinction between how we live. How we live matters. Ultimately, we know by, by theology, when we look at other verses, that we are, we are not held ultimately accountable for our sin if we're trusting in Christ to take that sin on himself. And we're trusting in the righteousness that he's given us. But there's still here Jesus saying there's going to be a distinction between those that actually love people and those that didn't. It's going to really look like something. So, so while we may be separated according to our faith, he's saying here that faith is going to look like something. You're going to actually love people or you're not going to love people. In 1 John, John says that if you love Jesus, you're going to love other people. It's going to look like something. It's going to change the way that you live. It's not salvation by works. And I want to make... A, the, the argument from this text, and then we'll look at some other verses too, but, but a big argument for this text is that they were unaware of what they were doing. So this is not um, me leaving here today and going, if I want to go to heaven, I need to give five cups of cold water in Jesus' name on Monday, and then I need to close some naked people on Tuesday, and I've got to visit three people in prison. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of the salvation by works paradigm, right? Where we make the list, and we go, okay, this is, these are goals I can achieve. I'll check them off my list, and then I'll be in heaven, and then I can be assured that I'm in. That's not the picture Jesus is giving. He's giving this picture of spontaneous living where you just love broken people, and Jesus in the judgment says, come on in, and you, you loved me when I, I needed it. And they're like, we didn't, we didn't love you. When, when did we do that? They were, they were totally unaware. He said, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. It's this spontaneous love that pours out of you. 
it's not something you can just purpose to do. You can't walk out of here and say, all right, I'll start fulfilling. I haven't been loving anybody, but now I will. I'll start loving people now, and then I'll be in heaven, right? No, you, you need that heart transformation where you realize, you come to the realization that, yeah, you don't love people. You've all failed at this. I've failed at this. None of us have met this qualification. But if we realize that Jesus loves us, despite our sin, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, as it says in Romans 5, then that will begin to change our heart. Then we will begin to spontaneous love, spontaneously love people. Then we'll begin to meet these qualifications. It will look like something. If it doesn't look like anything, you need to question if you've ever come to terms with how much God loves you. I've talked about this before. You know, there was the golden rule and the platinum rule. I had a professor that, that he would contrast, you know, the golden rule is do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Right? What you want, do that to people. But the platinum rule is, however you think God has treated you, you will treat people that way. And, and that's that kind of transformative principle of the gospel. That it will spontaneously generate love in your life if you really believe that God loves you. If you've come to terms with the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we all like sheep, like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Jesus the sin of us all. If you come to terms with that, that will change you. So it's not just praying a prayer. It's not just making some decision. It's not just um, thinking differently. But it's, it's being confronted with the reality of who God is and how much He loves you. And as you grow in that, you'll start loving people. So yes, do I want you to go out and start clothing people and feeding people and bringing water to those that are thirsty? Yes. We need to disperse and we need to love this community. We need to love this world. We have... Brochures for Compassion International. You know, we have all these opportunities for you to love other people. Yes, do those things. But don't walk out of here thinking, uh-oh, I better catch up now so I can go to heaven. No, walk out of here thinking, Jesus has loved me. I want to love other people. I want to share that with other people. Jesus has given to me. I want to give to other people. That, that's how it should work. That's the spontaneous where they're saying, what, Lord? We, we didn't do that. He says, no, you did. When you loved other people, you were loving me. And the people that didn't love other people, they said, when, when did we fail? When did we, we thought we were keeping all the qualifications. We thought we were checking off the list. And he says, no, when you were not loving people, you were not loving me. And he makes that distinction. And he alone has the right to judge us and to separate us. If you write down Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that's a great place that kind of just captures the systematic theology of how we understand that we are saved by grace, by what... Jesus has done for us by faith in Him. We trust in Him. But it looks like something. But it has an effect. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by works. It's the gift of God. It's this gift that He gives you. And that's what we emphasize all the time. You, you trust it. You believe in it. That's how you're saved. But it looks like something. In, in 2.10, we, we often skip the, the ending of that little section. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by works, but we do good works. We often want to just chop it off, go, up. Oh, we're not saved by works, so we can do whatever we want. Doesn't matter. No, he's saying you're not saved by works, you're saved by Jesus and what he's done for you. And then it looks like something. He's given all of you unique good works to do. He's given all of you a, a place and a time and a purpose to live in where you bring his grace and his love for those around you. He has a job for you to do. In Isaiah 58, I told you earlier, that's 
the passage that really Jesus is really drawing on the most here. And in that passage, Isaiah the prophet is condemning Israel for not loving people, for not clothing the naked, for not feeding the hungry, for not caring for the broken. And in Isaiah 58, it's this very much the same language that Jesus is using here of what it looks like to be his presence in the world, to be his power of love to those around you. Isaiah 58 has that same language and Israel's being condemned because they're not doing it. As a matter of fact, he says, you hold these fasts, you hold these worship services, you do these religious things, but they make me sick because you don't love anyone. Saying what it looks like to really love people is to do these other things, to actually care for people, to actually love those around you. That's what religion really looks like. Like James says, true religion is caring for the orphan and for the widow. It's actually caring for people. And he goes through all of that, and he, he's condemning Israel. They, they failed, they haven't done it. Just as we feel this weight of condemnation, we, we think, I haven't, I haven't really done that either. I haven't loved people the way that I should. And in Isaiah 59, he gives us the answer. The answer is not us just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and fixing it and just getting out there and loving people better. But in Isaiah 59, 16, he says, I saw that there was no one says he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He knows we've failed. And the gospel is not, okay, try harder. The gospel is God worked out a salvation for us. His own righteousness sustained him. He gives it to us as a gift. And it's going to look like something. It's going to change us. If, if you've really come face to face with that reality of the God that, that loves us, even when we don't deserve it, it's going to look like something. It's going to change you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us. And Lord, I pray that the weight of, of judgment would not, would not lead us to quicksand, to despair, to inaction. But it would be a, a brokenness and a despair that, that leads us to you, to our only hope, to the only thing that can pull us out of this hole. And I pray that as we recognize just the unheard of grace and freedom that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, that it would change us. That day after day we would be renewed, that we would begin to spontaneously love people in a way that we're not even aware of. Because we're not keeping track, we're keeping score to try to prove anything to you. We're just naturally loving people because you first loved us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you all stand with us, I'm just going to sing this last song um, just to claim that Christ is our, our only hope. So let's sing these together. Traveled and stored What heights of love What 
pray that as we believe and receive that, that you would continue to transform us, to use us for the good of this community, for the redemption of the world that you love and you gave yourself for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to remind you.